Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is John Bloom, who is the Director of Organizational Culture at RSF Social Finance in San Francisco. Welcome to the show, John. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Let's just start with the basics. Uh, Tell us what RSF Social Finance is. RSF Social Finance is a not-for-profit social finance organization that um, has the goal of transforming the way the world works with money. And we do that through uh, investing, lending, and giving. Um, And it's really primarily our approach to how we do those three activities that uh, distinguishes our work. Um, In many ways, we tried to work at the intersection between spirit and money, which is an unusual place to be. And RSF stands for Rudolf Steiner, is that correct? That's correct. It was um, founded as Rudolf Steiner Foundation um, in 1984. And uh, oftentimes people would say, well, who was Rudolf Steiner and was he some rich industrialist that left a big endowment and how do we get some of that money? Uh, and that's not really what we do as a public uh, charity. We, we don't have an endowment. We have an endowment of ideas uh, and uh, services that we provide. So um, we decided to change the name to reflect what we really do. And now you've come out uh, recently with a new book called The Genius of Money, mm-hmm. uh, published by Steiner Books, correct? That's uh, correct. Tell us, we're going to get into detail about it, but tell us the kind of overall idea uh, for this book and, and what people can learn by reading it. Sure. So three, um, there, there are three different threads that run through the book. One uh, was, I would say, how we understand cultural messages around money. So the first part of the book is devoted to um, works of art from the history of art with a kind of a deep analysis around the money messages that are uh, uh, in those in those mostly paintings, uh, drawings, and sometimes prints um, across time. So that's part one. Part two was... Uh, it's really about what I call the inner landscape of financial transactions, and it was really a reflection of my own personal journey in trying to understand, so how does one work with money in a new way and bring new consciousness to it? So it's a kind of a map of um, how transactions affect us. And the third part of the book are interviews with others who um, I experience as having very much transformed themselves uh, in how they have worked with money uh, for social benefit, in some cases philanthropic, some cases investment, in some cases just social change. Okay, before we're going to get into the book in some detail here, but why don't we kind of take an overall look? I, I guess most people would think of what you're doing as, as socially conscious in, investing and use of money. Is that uh, the correct field you're in, I would, I would say? I, I would say um, certainly socially conscious, and our, our goal is in a sense to bring both um, community around the uses of money, so to build community, um, and also to develop a kind of sustainable picture of financial transactions um, that is more of, I would say, a way of seeing other human beings and working together in collaboration rather than in competition with one another. So how would you say things are set up now in, in the way people deal with money compared to how you would like it to be uh, in, in your vision of it, in, in a more general sense of the way that... Sure. So I would say, um, and, and again, it's going to be a bit of an oversimplification, but I would say our current financial system is designed to be indirect, 
uh, and opaque uh, and uh, impersonal and based on short-term outcomes. I mean, that certainly uh, would describe, you know, recent activities uh, on Wall Street. Uh, it would describe some of the business transactions um, and a kind of a, a driving self-interest, whether that's corporate or personal, uh, behind it. So our one way of looking at that is to say if we could make every financial transaction as personal uh, and as transparent and as direct as possible and based on long-term relationships, that would be a very transformed picture. That's a huge piece of work to get from one to the other, of course. Have there been times in the world, not completely, but where that's been done maybe at a more local level, and what kind of impact has that had? I would say um, on local levels, there, I, I, in some ways it's always... Uh, always happened, whether that was the, you know, the birth of the community bank, um, which actually the whole community was carried and was support for that community. So um, it, the, the board of directors of the bank m- might be members of that community. Uh, and it was really there um, to serve a very particular function, which was to keep the money moving in, in the community. Uh, and of course, there was a lot of accountability built, uh, accountability built into that because um, the the bankers would also be your neighbor and might run into you at the market uh, and uh, maybe in church or wherever. And so uh, because everybody was so physical and present, you didn't want to do something that would be um, sort of self selfish. So the, the relationships, in a sense, kept the accountability. So what has gone wrong and what, what are the negative impacts of that indirectness, opacity, and all the other things you were mentioning? Yeah, I guess I would say, uh, of course, there are many, so that's a a long and complicated uh, question. Um, I would say, first and foremost, is that um, what's happened is that the accumulation of money has become an end in itself, and when you accumulate money, you're also taking it out of circulation. So... Um, that, of course, starves the, the sort of economic life of, uh, that's supported by the ongoing circulation of, of money. So credit gets tight, uh, and economic life also gets tight. So that's one, one consequence. The other is um, that it becomes a kind of one-sided process in which uh, money is used to make more money, which doesn't necessarily have any direct value uh, or direct investment value in making things new things or innovations possible in the world. So you get speculation, um, as we've seen, which is really just trading in shares and how much of the trading in shares money actually gets to the corporation itself through layers of intermediation. And I mean, that is, again, a whole uh, complicated story, one that's you know been pretty visible uh, of late uh, and one which is pretty impenetrable because it's so opaque. Is uh, one of the results of all of the trends you've been talking about, the financial crisis we've had, people kind of disconnected from their money, mm-hmm. there's all these opaque things going on, and the subprime mortgages that were being packaged and things blowing up and hedge funds and all these complicated things, is that kind of part of what led to the financial crisis we're, we're recovering from now? Boy, you know, uh, I, I don't think that that led to it. I think that that was the result of a, a long um, cumulative process that was driven, I would say, to a degree, and this is going to sound very judgmental, but degree by greed, because we've never really had a cultural conversation about how much is enough. Uh, and if 
one is completely directed and guided by competition, one always has to have more than. So you would have one investment bank after another trying to figure out how to, you know, best the other one. And, of course, that leads to uh, very short-term extractive decisions, short-term meaning how can we turn the most profit as quickly as possible and still maintain control. So one of the other results is that instead of money being given, in a sense, back into culture, it's been held in investments and ever more exotic and opaque investments so that uh, it can a, generate more value or virtual value, uh, and it leaves the whole cultural sector starved. Education, the arts, all of the whole realm of culture, which is, in a sense, mostly funded through gift. So again, are there places beyond the kind of the local community we talked about first, where sure. in a broader sense, a, a country or a culture, where it's done maybe not perfectly, but a lot better than the way we do it in America? Um, well, of course, you know, one could look at Europe uh, uh, with all of the issues that it has and says, well, um, they actually have looked at culture um, through the tax, uh, called it the methodology of taxes, which are really kind of a gift. And what they've said is, we're going to tax you to make this a, your mandatory, mandatory contribution to uh, medical insurance and cultural activities. So even in, in some European countries, the, the country collects taxes that is then given back to churches. So that would be pretty uh, unimaginable um, you know, in a straightforward way in this country, with the separation of church and state. But that's one, one way that is done. And then there are, are cultures, uh, even in Indonesia and others that have no money at all, that have figured out ways of being together and providing for each other out of gifts and strengths, uh, whatever that might be, um, that doesn't require any money because um, economics is really about the capacities to produce goods and services, uh, to receive those, exchange them, uh, and you know, money is basically just a holder of those processes. So you're saying in those societies, uh, culture is, is supported, but it's not having to be taken from the government one way or the other. Exactly, well, because it's actually co-created out of community, as are the agreements around the exchanges that are needed and the values of those exchanges. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, much of it has to do with how, how much the capacity to um, set value and agree to value has been removed from uh, sort of the ground level. Is that transferable to the United States? Well, there are, are some ways of doing it. Um, I say that there are some small operating models where uh, new ways of creating exchange have, have developed. Uh, the community-supported agriculture movement comes to mind. Um, that is a, a way of working associatively uh, through economics, meaning that the price for, a, say, a share is set not only by the farmer, but in conjunction with the with the eater or the consumer, as well as any distributors that are there or if there are other farmers. So um, everybody puts their needs on the table, and the price is set out of uh, a kind of a community agreement. So that's totally outside the marketplace um, as an approach. So there are uh, models at work uh, that could be looked to. That same model has been used for healthcare as well. Again. Smaller, local. I don't know. You know, the scalability is always a question. Yes. But how important <laughs> is scale? If it's okay. 
Uh, before we go to break, I just want uh, you to tell people about the website you have. You also have a blog and how they can find out a little bit about, more about what you do and what RSF does. Sure. So our website is rsfsocialfinance.org. Uh, and um, on that website, you can go and find out who our grantees and our uh, borrowers are. Uh, you can learn about how our investing in RSF works um, and uh, even, even open an account or a fund. Uh, and then and that is a blog, which is called Reimagine Money. Uh, I write for that blog. And then I have my own blog as well, which is uh, transformingmoney.blogspot.com. Very good. Okay. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is John Bloom. Uh, he is Director of Organizational Culture at the RSF Social Finance Organization based in San Francisco. His new book is called The Genius of Money. And we'll be back after this. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to go green? You've asked and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Hi, this is Jordan Goodman, host of The Money Answer Show. I cordially invite you to join me and some of my favorite investing experts for the Money Answers Investing Cruise from February 12th through February 19th, 2011, on board Holland America's luxurious MS Eurodam. In this volatile investing environment, good advice is more important than ever, and this exclusive Caribbean cruise offers not only fun, but also a full week of highly informative events with me and other top investing experts like Ray Lucia and Charles Payne from Fox News Network. During seminars, panel discussions, and Q&As, at cocktail parties and at dinners, we will discuss current market conditions and the best places for your investment dollars. Meanwhile, luxuriate in the amenities of Holland America's newest ship and visit some of the best ports for shopping, sightseeing, and sunning. For more information, go to www.moneyanswerscruise.com or call 800 707 1634. That's 800-707-1634. And don't delay because spaces are limited. Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa provides homeowners and investors eager to invest well in real estate the knowledge, resources, and tools necessary to generate significant wealth. Our focus will be the paradigm. Live where you want. Invest where it makes the most sense. Listen live to the brightest minds in real estate investment every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. That's Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa, where America learns to invest. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is John Bloom, who's Director of Organizational Culture at the RSF Social Finance Organization based in San Francisco. Welcome back to the show, John. Well, thank you. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the interviews you have in the new book you came out with called The Genius of Money, and maybe you could just kind of give us a synopsis of some of the key points from some of these people that uh, you interviewed. The first one is uh, Jacob Needleman, and basically just tell us briefly you know, what he's about and some of the, the key nuggets from that interview. Yeah, so Jacob is uh, a philosopher and a well-known author. Um, I think his book called is uh, Money and the Meaning of Life. And he's written several other books, too, as a professor at San Francisco State and a very deep thinker. Uh, what he looked at in the interview uh, was about the disconnect between our inner life and our outer practices. So much of uh, the interview is exploring what the desire nature of the human being is, where that comes from, how we think about it, how it's been portrayed in the archetypes in culture, and then the challenges that money as a social technology presents for each of us as, as individuals. And of course, there are many archetypes through the, through the history of uh, story and mythology around money and gold uh, as well. So he weaves all of those together. And the second thread um, that I spoke to him about was, what is America's particular challenge uh, and work around uh, around money as well. And, and his feeling was, um, he spoke about this fairly extensively, was that somehow their money was central to the American mindset only because it was such an entrepreneurial culture. Uh, and of course, there's a direct correlation between entrepreneurial instinct, entrepreneurial activities, and how one actually finances all of that. So... Uh, of course, it was the great challenge in all the shadows around uh, entrepreneurship and greed also surface in relation to the desire nature. And how do we overcome that? How do we see a different way through that that is uh, looking at a sustainable world? And, and what is the way through that? Well, first of all, the, our own reflection, one uh, 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 suggestion that he makes at the end of the interview is to just sit down at the end of the day and review all your uses of money um, and say, okay, so what, what values uh, were at work in my financial activities during the day? Uh, did I have to sort of deny a certain value that I hold in order to you know, uh, buy gasoline at the gas station? And just to take stock and begin to recognize the, that inner challenge um, of how much we actually live in, in many ways, live in compromise. Then you have an interview with uh, Charles Terry, mm-hmm. who is the president of Terry McGregor Associates, which is a philanthropic advisor. Uh, what, what are some of the key nuggets from his interview? So um, I would say you know, Charles was also the uh, one of the founders and president of the Rockefeller Families uh, services. And what he found was um, how one could actually be connected to the world underground when you're looking at it from the 52nd floor on Fifth Avenue in New York City. So um, uh, he was able to bring people together in in community around opening uh, the door, which was a a tremendous youth services organization, uh, and to help those who, you know, wanted to practice philanthropy 
but didn't know quite what to do with it to do a lot of education around that. So um, he's really a very, uh, I would say, an extraordinary educator, doing a lot of work in Africa now around philanthropic education as well and helping people understand that philanthropy is not just something one gets to do, but is a more sort of essential function in relation to practicing one's values. In today's economy, where people are very concerned about their jobs and their income and they're kind of very scared, is that hurt uh, philanthropic efforts? Or does that make people want to give more? How has that been affecting the philanthropic world? Well, of course, it's been uh, from a purely, I would say, from a, a cash money perspective, uh, it has certainly had an adverse effect on the philanthropic world. Uh, if one is um, giving out of, say, the returns on an investment portfolio or otherwise, um, you know, that's been, um, that's been hammered, and so less is being given in that way. At the same time, people are discovering new ways to give, and by that I mean uh, the gifts of time, and making hands available because if there are people who are out of work, that doesn't mean they're you know not useful people or don't have skills that can be offered. Uh, so uh, there's been a great deal of interest in time banks, which is in a sense a uh, a way of coordinating volunteer activities that isn't just barter and trade, but actually um, is treating time as a currency, um, totally outside the sort of financial system. So. Um, that's one creative solution. There, there are many others. Uh, charities themselves, uh, on the other side, the receiving end, um, sort of the fastest growing aspect around charities is mergers and acquisitions. And that's always a funny thing to associate with charitable activity. But um, I think there was the birth of so many charities uh, that are now finding themselves in competition with each other and starting to look and say, maybe there's some way we can leverage what we do by combining our activities with others uh, and therefore be more effective at drawing the resources that they need as well. On the other hand, there is a movement amongst multi-billionaires, Gates and Buffett and so on, um, pledging to give most, if not all, of their wealth to, to charities and, and really get deeply involved like Bill Gates has and so on. Is, sure. is that a, a trend that's helping uh, the whole philanthropic world? I, I certainly hope so. There's a wonderful movement called Boulder Giving um, that was recognized both um, by Gates and uh, by Buffett for having encouraged people to give away at least a, a, a portion of their fortunes you know, before they die. And uh, that was certainly what Warren Buffett was trying to say. Some of the challenges around that is, of course, is an extraordinary amount of money. Uh, and to give it away means what? To put it in a private foundation, uh, and then how does the private foundation turn around and distribute that? Um, so it's it's not as simple as thinking, well, they just you know showered a lot of money into the world. Those have gone into private foundations that then have to manage those funds and invest. Uh, they're required by law to give maybe uh, uh, five to ten percent of their. Um, uh, annual return away. So uh, even that's a huge challenge. It is difficult to give that kind of money away effectively. Is this something that you, that uh, your RSF Finance Foundation helps philanthropies do, is to make um, the best possible use of philanthropic dollars? Well, several ways that we, we do that. We're not a private foundation, uh, but we work with a number of private foundations to encourage them to think about... Um, 
the other 95% that's invested. Uh, one of the, the challenges for a private foundation is, is they have the investment side and the investments are you know, charged with maximizing the return on their investments. So uh, without necessarily looking at regard for social consequences to that um, in maximizing returns. So how could that even be rethought? Uh, the, the history has been that you know, the 95% is invested in activities that the other 5% that's being given away is designed to fix. So that doesn't make sense. So we've been working with private foundations to help them rethink their portfolios about how they could take the other 95% that is under their control in an investment and actually have social benefit out of that that's more in alignment with their own missions. So this is where a lot of money is going into social, socially conscious investing with screens, both positive and negative screens, screens for things that people like, like energy efficiency and so on, things against pollution and defense contracting and gambling and that kind of thing. Is that what you're talking about? That, that's the ideal. Um, of course, there are many challenges in that. It's a very complicated field. Uh, and if one takes the notion of uh, direct, transparent, and personal uh, based on long-term relationships as, a, as the, I don't want to say the guidepost in that process, um, that gets very complicated because most investing is done through intermediaries, through mutual funds. Uh, so how does the money actually get out into the world and, and, and work? So the screens are important, but um, I would say we want to raise it another notch to say how can one actually get the funds as directly as possible into the entrepreneur's hands. So are some foundations doing that, doing direct lending, uh, two entrepreneurs or two small companies or microfinance or instead of going through intermediaries, as you put it? Um, some are, um, but uh, it's called program-related investments, and that is a, a tool that private foundations have at their disposal to make effective use of some of their philanthropic dollars. Historically, that's come out of the program side than, rather than out of the, you know, the 90, what we call the 95% side, but that's beginning to shift. Uh, the challenge has been that private foundations are really good at the philanthropic piece but aren't very good as, as lenders, and that's where RSF Social Finance comes in because we are, we are lenders. We have you know, a pretty significant portfolio. We've been lending for, uh, well, 26 years, 27 years very successfully. So um, we do have a, a kind of platform, a program-related investment platform that can be very effective to work with private foundations if they're interested in you know, taking that on. We have a credit crunch going on in this country now. Is there a, a, a bigger need than ever for this kind of private lending uh, since the banking system doesn't seem to be doing a very good job? Um, I think there is a, a growing need. We certainly have seen, uh, uh, in a sense, we're counter-cyclical in, in that we've seen lots of very, very interesting and very powerful projects. We don't fund startups, so um, you know, startup capital is another matter altogether. Um, but there's a lot of innovation going on, uh, and we've been able to be part of, of, of some of that. Um, I would say also that there's co uh, quite a movement in what I would call peer-to-peer -peer lending that's developed, uh, organizations like Lending Club and, uh, oh, and there are a number of others, like Kiva Prosper. also, where yeah. there's uh, not quite as direct there as it is, say, with, with Lending Club, but people are wanting to find new ways of getting their money out working. Uh, one that they can feel, A, good about, to is maybe even be able to figure out where the money's working, uh, as well as, you know, at least receive a, a, a decent return. Not a necessarily a stellar return, but a solid. 
Okay, we're going to take a break and get back more into after the break uh, exactly what RSF does and how people can uh, access what you do. Great. I'm speaking with John Bloom, uh, who is Director of Organizational Culture at RSF Social Finance, based in San Francisco. We'll be back after this. markets up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network to grow your business listen for the independent business owners show with your coach rick carrado this entertaining talk radio program will bring you the tools to help increase your business you'll learn sales success time management lead generation business development life balance and much more rick carrado is here to help you take your business to the next level listen for the independent business owners show heard live every monday morning at 11 a.m eastern time 8 a.m pacific on the voice america business network Join Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday, 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Hi, this is Jordan Goodman, host of The Money Answer Show. I cordially invite you to join me and some of my favorite investing experts for the Money Answers Investing Cruise from February 12th through February 19th, 2011, on board Holland America's luxurious MS Eurodam. In this volatile investing environment, good advice is more important than ever, and this exclusive Caribbean cruise offers not only fun, but also a full week of highly informative events with me and other top investing experts like Ray Lucia and Charles Payne from Fox News Network. During seminars, panel discussions, and Q&As, at cocktail parties and at dinners, we will discuss current market conditions and the best places for your investment dollars. Meanwhile, luxuriate in the amenities of Holland America's newest ship and visit some of the best ports for shopping, sightseeing, and sunning. For more information, go to www.moneyanswerscruise.com or call 800 707 1634. That's 800-707-1634. And don't delay because spaces are limited. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is John Bloom, who is Director of Organizational Culture at RSF Social Finance. Uh, This is the Rudolf Steiner Foundation uh, company. Uh, organization based in San Francisco. Welcome back to the show, John. Well, thank you. I'd like to get into some specifics of what the public, how the public can deal with RSF um, in, in investing money with you and how you lend it out. So why don't you explain that process a little bit? Sure. So we um, basically have uh, investors through our social investment fund 
uh, and that is uh, designed to be a very low low threshold because we want as many people as possible to be engaged in in social investing. So, for a minimum of a thousand dollars and and a three month term, a little bit like a CD, uh, one can be an investor. Uh, that money uh, comes in and uh, is then through our lending team goes out to socially conscious uh, borrowers. Um, companies, social enterprises, for-profit and not-for-profit, that um, have a proven track record uh, that maybe need to grow or need to build a new facility. It's all asset-backed debt financing. Uh, we have a long track record of success of you know over $200 million loaned out uh, and a great repayment record. So um, what's extraordinary about that is in that that in and of itself of having a, a loan fund and then money being placed out is a little bit like a community loan. What's different about how we work is, first of all, how we assess those social entrepreneurs. We are looking for very deep social values um, in, in how they do their work. And by that, I mean everything from the labor pool uh, to suppliers to the content of the materials, marketing, the education that they do, how they work in their community and to the degree to which they're actually trying to transform uh, social values through their product and, and their work. So that's um, a little bit of the uh, assessment side. But we also, um, on a quarterly basis, uh, we adjust our, our interest rates. And we do that by actually bringing in, uh, investors uh, together with the borrowers and, and our own staff so in that sense, there's the, the investor, there's the intermediary, that's, that's us, RSF, that also has, make, earns its living out of the fees from that. So we have interest in that as well. And the borrowers, and, and it's quite, uh, uh, quite an interesting process because, first of all, I don't know any other financial institution that brings the investors and borrowers together. So there's simply a, a major step forward in relationship there. Um, and second, um, usually investors come in to say, okay, I'm, I'll come into this conversation and figure out how I can earn a you know, half a percent or a percent more of interest. Uh, and the borrowers uh, uh, naturally come in saying, hmm, I'll see if I can negotiate my, my rate down somehow or other. And then as they begin to hear each other's stories, uh, something begins to shift. And suddenly the borrowers realize, oh, it's not some anonymous source of money, but actually the person who placed their money and their trust in this organization that made my loan possible. Uh, and I, I remember sitting in one meeting where uh, someone, woman said, you know, I really, I depend on that 1%. It's not a huge return, but I depend on that to uh, be able to um, live and uh, uh, to meet my needs. Uh, and one of the borrowers was so touched uh, by that that they even said, well, they would increase their rate by half a percent to make sure that she got her 1% out of it. Now, that's very unusual, uh, but it was out of the sort of the warmth of the storytelling and the relationship that that, that, that emerged. What kind of yields do people, and is it based on the maturity of their loan? Is it three months, six months, one year? And, and what kind of yields are available today? So right now, the social investment fund uh, returns 1%, uh, and that it's really pretty much a single uh, product uh, in that way. So there's not um, a different rate for length of, uh, of maturity. We just have a minimum three-month renewal. Actually, our average investor stays with us about seven and a half to eight years or so, which is... I see. So you just keep it. You're earning 1% per year no matter how long you keep it, as long as it's three months is what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. uh, on the other hand, uh, we've never had a negative return, and we can always tell you exactly where those dollars are at work because we're actually the lender. So 
uh, our our loan officers are in close relationship with all of the all of the borrowers. And what kind of default rate has there been? Um, pretty minimal, I would have to say. Um, I, you know, uh, out of our core fund, it's been well below one to two percent. And even though the economy has been tough, it's still not affected your companies, really. Oh, abs- no, very much. Well, we work very closely with them, and if we have to. Uh, out of partnership, do a little restructuring or a change. Um, it's it's really a partnership rather than just a, an adversarial relationship. So we also provide a lot of technical assistance and advisory work. Um, we'll send people in to help uh, rethink how things go. So we have a, an interest in their in their success, and we'll work really hard to make sure that they remain successful. Is we just have a lot of you know. Uh, uh, Sort of layers of security around those loans as well, guarantors in some cases, or uh, there's certainly the assets as well. Is this domestic only, or are you doing things around the world as well as far as where you lend money? So the lending is primarily U.S. domestic, a little bit in Canada as well. Uh, grant making, on the other hand, through the donor advised funds is international. On the investment side, it's pretty much domestic then? Yes, yeah. 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 So maybe just give us an example or two of the kind of entrepreneurial uh, enterprise uh, that's also socially conscious sure. that has received uh, some of those uh, lent funds? Well, I would say, you know, for one, uh, I, you know, I'd like to, to tell the story of Numi Tea because they were, uh, they're a local company. They're in Oakland. Um, they have grown tremendously over the last years, but they started by saying, you know, we have to really make sure that we support the, the tea farmers. Uh, so they went there and helped educate them helped develop uh, organic practices um, in a way that those farmers actually had a much broader market reach than just, you know, than just Numi. Uh, and then uh, how they choose their, um, well, the warehouses in Oakland, so they're creating local jobs there as well, and very mindful of every step along the way, what is the social benefit impact that they're creating out of this marketing activity. So that's oh. one. Uh, okay. I don't know how many, you know, how many yeah, maybe more. Maybe just one more, maybe. Yeah. So uh, we also loaned to to schools, uh, and so uh, it's not atypical uh, that we would lend for building or campus. And in that, we've been able to go to using uh, pledges for capital campaigns as well as a series of guarantors as a basis for supporting not-for-profits um, like California Institute of Integral Studies or Esalen Institute um, to actually build new facilities or rebuild or refurbish as well. So is this being done beyond RSF? Is there a whole kind of community of socially conscious lending going on like this? Um, I'm going to say we're, we're unique in the sense that we bridge lending to not-for-profits and for-profits. Um, they're the nonprofit. Um, let's see, Nonprofit Finance Foundation also does lending to not-for-profits on a smaller scale, um, but they lend only to not-for-profits. And then, of course, uh, there are, are others that are burgeoning around the uh, uh, for-profit side as well. But I think we're the only one that actually is able to cross over. Between so both. In addition to getting the investors their 1% return, what kind of a difference? You said you've invested 200, or lent 200 million. Yeah. What kind of a difference has that made in communities where you've lent out this money? Well, our our goal around the lending is to create a sustainable community. So, um, 
one of the reasons why we like when we get guarantors or otherwise, we actually like to build guarantors around a particular project. In other words, we will go to individuals or a group of individuals and maybe the entrepreneur, him or herself, to make commitments to the success of the project because at the end of the day, when we're, when we're paid back uh, and out of the project, it's the local community there that has a vested interest in the success of the project that is going to help it be sustainable. So, um, again, our goal is to leave a pretty healthy community behind, uh, and we do a lot of educating and cultivating and uh, community building as well. Uh, in some cases, that may be between uh, between suppliers and uh, markets and distributors, um, as well as the the entrepreneur, him or herself. Is this? It's not exactly the same as what you're doing, but one hears a lot about microfinance and helping particularly in the third world, lending out very small amounts of money and helping people get businesses going. It sounds like not what you're doing, but is that something that's kind of similar to the direction you're going? Well, from uh, from a 30,000-foot social impulse side, absolutely, it's quite similar. We, we like to sort of jokingly say it's like macrofinance in a way, um, only in reference to the microfinance, because we... Um, we do make loans. We do want it to build community. Uh, we do want the sort of the local community to uh, stand for the success of the project. We don't cross collateralize in a way that a uh, say a microloan community might do. Um, but the the social intent uh, is very much there. Uh, I would say we don't charge the same kind of interest rates that microfinance institutions tend to charge, which you know are fairly high because of course the risk is high. Um, but we don't really um, lend on the notion of uh, risk and return. There, there's some of that, of course, but not in the way that most pricing is done. If there's somebody out there who wants to get a loan from you, what are some of the things you would look for in their organization uh, for them to qualify for a loan? Uh, well, for one is uh, their mission. That's first and foremost, what is their, what's their purpose in the world? Uh, what are they striving for? What, what intentions do they carry? Uh, and then we also want to know what their challenges are, um, what the needs are, what the likelihood of being uh, of earning enough to be able to repay the loan uh, and support that debt over time. Uh, and even though, uh, just to give you one example, we had an organization come to us for a loan. We did a lot of analysis, and they said, "Well, we have a you know loan from the local bank, there, but we'd love to work with you." And we said, "We actually wouldn't make the loan." And there was a lot of consternation and curiosity in the room, and we said, well, we wouldn't make the loan because it's going to burden you with so much debt that that will compromise your programs down the line because we take a look at the whole organization, and even though they could have supported the debt, it wouldn't have been healthy uh, long-term or sustainable for the organization. So I don't know if that answers your question directly, yes, it but it's... Yeah. Very good. All right, we're going to go to a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is John Bloom who's Director of Organizational Culture at RSF Social Finance, based in San Francisco. We'll be back after this. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
Hi, this is Jordan Goodman, host of The Money Answer Show. I cordially invite you to join me and some of my favorite investing experts for The Money Answers Investing Cruise from February 12th through February 19th, 2011, on board Holland America's luxurious MS Eurodam. In this volatile investing environment, good advice is more important than ever, and this exclusive Caribbean cruise offers not only fun, but also a full week of highly informative events with me and other top investing experts like Ray Lucia and Charles Payne from Fox News Network. During seminars, panel discussions, and Q&As, at cocktail parties and at dinners, we will discuss current market conditions and the best places for your investment dollars. Meanwhile, luxuriate in the amenities of Holland America's newest ship and visit some of the best ports for shopping, sightseeing, and sunning. For more information, go to www.moneyanswerscruise.com or call 800-707-1634. That's 800-707-1634. And don't delay because spaces are limited. It's all Arizona, all over the world. If you're a local Arizona high school sports fan or if you're a transplanted fan somewhere else in the world, have we got a show for you. The first Internet sports radio talk show focusing solely on high school sports is The Coach's Corner with Scott Lovely. Tune in to talk about your favorite teams, players, or coaches. It's 100% Arizona high school sports coverage and a little bit more. Tune in Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. 7 p.m. Eastern to the Voice America Sports Channel. Go inside the world of PR with PR Insider, hosted by public relations expert Maureen Kettis. Maureen will speak to the world's highest profile PR pros from the fields of marketing, advertising, and sales. And PR Insider will feature renowned members of the media as special guests. Maureen will give you a VIP access pass, including tips and tricks to take your business to the next level. PR Insider with Maureen Kettis, sponsored by Cision, us.cision.com. Listen every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Network. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is John Bloom, who is Director of Organizational Culture at RSF Social Finance, based in San Francisco. Welcome back to the show, John. Great. We want to get back to the book again a little bit. Uh, His book is called The Genius of Money. Uh, you had some interviews with some very interesting people towards the back of the book. And just again, maybe just give us some of the nuggets from each of these interviews. You have one with uh, Christina Jerzyskowski, is that right? That's correct. And, and what were some of the key things, and, and what was she, and what were some of the key things from her interview? Yeah, I would say uh, one is um, how, uh, as a philanthropist, how one actually works with intuition and that's a place of uh, uh, reflection that is often a challenge for philanthropists who often um, are wanting to do their quote, work effectively, strategically, have a business plan. Uh, and it's not that those things are unimportant to her, but at the end of the day, um, she has a sense of uh, how to support someone's uh, or an organization's work, and she trusts her her intuition to to really be the the indicator for that. And secondarily, that she speaks quite a bit about um, 
understanding another another person's life path or destiny path. Uh, and um, her feeling is that if you want to see something done, find the person who you know has that in their destiny path to get it done, and then support them in it. And it's really the individuals doing their work, following their following their their vision, uh, that will bring about change in the world. Great. Uh, then you have an interview with a guy named Paul McKay, who's uh, in Switzerland. Yes, Paul, just tell us briefly, Paul McKay. Uh, Paul McKay. Yeah. Um, just tell us briefly about uh, what you learned from him. Sure. So uh, Paul was one of the founders of uh, Triados Bank, uh, in, uh, well, housed in Amsterdam. Uh, Triados Bank is one of the largest uh, ethical uh, banks in, in Europe, uh, in assets of trillions of dollars. And they, interestingly enough, just um, to reflect back on some of the values spoken about earlier, uh, were relatively unaffected and quite healthy through the whole financial crisis because they never, ever resell loans or otherwise. They actually practice uh, lending across whole sectors. So they would look at the energy field, for example, and uh, have all of the parties to the sort of the manufacturer production, say wind power or otherwise, uh, the end users as well, bring those together and uh, they would actually um, support those projects either via investing or co- cross-collateralizing or participating in the loan so that they are looking at is the lending as a whole system. Uh, and that is a deep social, that also is a sort of a deep social value in, uh, in lending. So their approach is really through se- what they call sector lending. Mm-hmm. Then you had an interview with Michael Spence uh, from England. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about him. So Michael is a very uh, deep thinker, um, particularly uh, a student of Rudolf Steiner's work around economics. Uh, and in that interview, he really talks about the three different kinds of, of money uh, and also uh, how those work in the world. So just to put a pause on, on Michael's interview uh, the three different kinds of money that Steiner wrote about is that there's no such thing as money. There are only three different kinds. One would be money that we use for purchase, money that we use to lend or invest, and then money that's gift money. Uh, and the rules set around those, the values that are attached to those, the practices around those are each quite different. And trying to develop consciousness around those three different qualities of money and putting them in their right place um, is a very important subject, and, and Michael's very steeped in those ideas, so uh, much of it was an exploration of, of those, um, those thoughts, and also, um, I would say, uh, how human intelligence is applied to economics. In other words, somebody has an idea, ideas build over time, how does one invest in that, how does, how, in the end, how does a machine get invented, and how does that make possible to support the economic world? Uh, a crane, for example, which I know he describes, is is the result of multiple lifetimes of research and innovation in mechanics. Very good. Well, you have many more interviews. We don't have a chance to get into all of them here. As we get towards the end, why don't you get, give us kind of an overall view of what kinds of difference it can make uh, with the social view of money that you have compared to the traditional uh, view? Sure. Well, one... Um, thing that we talk quite a bit about, and, and the book actually addresses this pretty directly, is the relationship between spirit and money. Uh, and again, those are not two things that, that Trish and people feel go hand in hand, but the fact is that if we can do a, uh, uh, if we have a financial transaction, and that we realize that through that transaction we're adding value, not just that I get what 
I want it or you get what you want. But in fact, we're adding value through the process to the whole economic world. In other words, uh, out of a trans, I buy something from you, I needed that, and you needed the money. So you actually got something that you needed, I got something that I needed. And out of that, collaboratively, we're adding value to a, a long value chain that goes through across around the whole world, actually, and circulates ar- around the world. So that is not a a view of taking something out, but a view of participation and circulation. And to me, that is a a very different imagination around uh, how we work with money. So um, that's you know that's in one view. And and our job, for example, is for RSF Social Finance. The way we look at it is, we take pride in how much money we get out moving in the world. So if you were to come here and say, well, we want to see all your assets, our assets are really agreements between people those agreements that have allowed resources to move from one place to another to support um, social benefit in a way, uh, to allow people to fulfill their their vision or their destiny paths. So that's a picture of money supporting human activity rather than sort of the <laughs> using human activity to support the accumulation of money. Very good. Uh, again, tell people about uh, your website and uh, how they can get the book and, and your blog. So the website, RSF Social Finance uh, website, is www.rsfsocialfinance.org. Uh, and the blog, uh, the Reimagine Money blog, is embedded in that, in that website, so you can go directly there. And then uh, my own blog is transform money, transformingmoney.blogspot.com. Uh, the book is actually available uh, through Steiner Books. Uh, that's steinerbooks.org. Uh, it's also available on, on Amazon and a number of other outlets as well. Um, yeah. Terrific. Well, thanks so much. This has really been fascinating. My guest this hour has been uh, John Bloom, uh, who's Director of Organizational Culture at RSF Social Finance. A uh, whole different way of looking at money uh, to empower people and supposed to being victims of money, I guess you might say. Well, right. So thanks so much for being on the Money Answer Show, John. Well, and, thanks so much, uh, listeners, Jordan. Hope you enjoyed the, uh, the show, and we'll be back again with another edition of the Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you.